my name's Tom Jennings, this is the 24 Frames cast, and this is going to be another episode of the Criterion Roundup. Um, I'm not going to kind of waffle on too much about what these are, if you haven't listened to them before, each a month-by-month look at the Criterion Collection. If you're a first-time listener, you will notice I am a few months behind, which is why I'm going to be doing the January 2013 releases, but to be brutally honest with you, I will slowly catch up, and I don't really think it's a massive issue, because... Um, it's always got a good to talk about these films, and I'm going to spin right on with Spine Number 643, which was Alfred Hitchcock's 1934 film, The Man Who Knew Too Much. I think this film articulates many of what are going to become recurrent Hitchcock motifs, and in many ways is, in my opinion, one of the first ones where his style really flourishes organically with the story. And he starts to blend skillfully two sides of his personality that were very, very strong. One is uh, obviously the master of suspense side of it, and the other one is that he was a superb uh, comedic director. Both genres, suspense, thriller, require huge control of timing, but so does comedy. And this is one aspect in which the man who knew too much takes full advantage of Hitchcock's humor and, and uh, proclivity to, to find humor in the most dire circumstances and in the darkest ways sometimes. Are these poisoned? <laughs> Sound and music make the shifts, the tonal shifts in Man Who Knew Too Much almost give birth to the first modern Hitchcock. The Hitchcock that is not going to be doing one genre or another. He's not going to be doing Champagne, The Ring, uh, The Lodger. He says, I'm all, of, I'm all of that. Now, when I was in my second year at university, apart from spending a great deal of my time out drinking and looking at girls, I decided when I did have to do some coursework that I was going to take a unit in Alfred Hitchcock. Now, I had seen a number of Alfred Hitchcock films before this, and one of the reasons why I wanted to do this unit in particular really kind of caught my lecturer off guard, because during the first lesson, he asked us why we had actually taken the course, and I actually said that the reason why I had done this particular unit was because I didn't really like Hitchcock films, and I wanted to kind of get to the bottom of why this is, and this is one of the things which I've found throughout my kind of life of film, really, that often when I'm not attracted to a certain film or a filmmaker or any kind of like particular movement, I'm often more intrigued as to why that is than the ones that I do like. And I tend to kind of, kind of keep going back to them to try and figure out what it is about them I don't like. And with the kind of idea, I think, that it will somehow build my kind of appreciation of cinema in a kind of somewhat bigger way. I mean, it's for, for example, it's something like kind of animation, um, sort of anime, sorry, the Japanese stuff. It's taken me many years, really, to get kind of into that. And it, it wasn't easy, I don't think. And eventually I kind of got there. And I now really kind of like those films. But I think when I was kind of 19 years old, I can kind of attribute this kind of not liking kind of Hitchcock very much to a kind of film snobbery in a way. Um, because at the time, I was just so into the films of Michael Mann and David Lean. And there seemed to be something kind of slightly strange about Hitchcock. He would kind of go out of his way to show us kind of how fake his films were. There would always be a kind of cutaway where there'd be laughable rear projection and things like that. Or 
some of these characters seem kind of a little dim and at times you kind of leave moments or scenes in his films that, that look fairly amateurish. But as I was kind of to discover later, Hitchcock was clearly no slouch, he was simply having fun. I mean, when we know something is fake, why is it that we kind of jump up and down in our seats or yelp out with fear? And the joy of Hitchcock is the kind of the fact that he kind of revels in this kind of ludicrous relationship between what we see on screen and how we react in the real world. And one of the things I kind of come to life about him is the kind of the sheer scale of his filmography. And occasionally it throws out a few surprises and being no stranger to the Criteria Collection, Hitchcock's latest edition, The Man Who Knew Too Much, was certainly one that held my intrigue from the off. It is a film that represented something of a watershed for Hitchcock, although he had dabbled in thrillers before. His previous film, Waltz in Vienna, a film that I have seen and still to this day would probably struggle to watch the first five minutes of again, is a turgid dull musical that even the man himself hated, having only taken it because he wanted to work. With the man who knew too much, he would begin a cycle of thrillers that would become renowned for, and although I don't think it is one of his best, it is certainly a rip-roaring film at a brisk 75 minutes. It follows the story of Bob and Jill Lawrence, Leslie, played by Leslie Banks and Edna Best, who are a couple of upper-class British types in Switzerland where Jill is taking part in a clay pigeon shooting contest, as you do. They befriend Louis Bernard, a French spy who is assassinated at dinner whilst dancing with Jill. Before dying, he slips through a note to be delivered to the British consul that details a further assassination of a head of state of an unnamed European country. In order to ensure they shut up, the assassins headed by Abbot Peter Laurie kidnap Bob and Jill's daughter. With the action returned to London, the husband and wife team embark on a quest not only to get their daughter back, but to stop the assassination. Now, firstly, don't bother looking for the Hitchcock cameo in this film, although some people say there is one, I'm pretty certain I rewound the scene several times and I'm pretty certain it isn't actually him. Secondly, although I hate the phrase leave your brain at the door when talking about a certain type of cinema, don't think too hard about some of the logic, continuity, blocking in the film, as you may find yourself wondering how Hitchcock was allowed to make another film again, as I was in a strange way. Like a great deal of Hitchcock films, Bob and Jill are two relatively normal people who become embroiled in a truly global situation. It is what I love about his work, and a simple form of creating natural suspense, because unlike your typical action heroes, his characters have nothing in the form of preparedness that some kind of special agent might have. What they inevitably have is more intelligence than the villains, who in this case would be far better simply killing Bob and Jill at any of the many opportunities they have. However, they don't. They simply kidnap her daughter, put her on a rather comfortable looking sleigh and take her across the snow and then make her speak to her parents. But what the film's trump card is, is the villain Abbott, who of course is played by Peter Laurie. Now, although M was his most successful film up until that point, it was also something of a curse. The only scripts he ever received were for thrillers, yet Hitchcock must have called it the right time as the actor was impoverished, having to borrow money from his brother to make the audition. He also didn't really speak much English at all, and he could only just about muster yes or no to many of Hitchcock's many questions. Now, he does a fantastic job in the film. Now, I would contest, perhaps rather controversially, that I actually think Laurie is actually better here than he is in M. He has a kind of mischievous grin and it kind of holds a look on something or someone a little bit too long for it to kind of carry on being comfortable. 
The obvious kidnapping of a child from the man who kills him, I think would have made contemporaries acutely, contemporary audiences acutely aware of that role and what he was doing. And it gives him that rather darker, sinister edge. Now, I don't think it really needs kind of mentioning, but clearly he and his accomplices work for Hitler, making him even more vile today with what we know now. And I think it's obvious that Hitchcock is far more interested in Abbott than any of the other characters because so much attention is paid to him. He has a rather bizarre haircut, a cigarette hanging out of his mouth and of course a rather wicked looking scar. And Abbott is a grotesque person who actually enjoys the killing and the kind of the making these kind of families sweat and cry over their daughter who is being who is kidnapped. You can easily imagine that if he wasn't doing this for Germany, he would be doing it for fun anyway. My favourite aspect of the character is his female psychic, who is rather oddly also his nurse, although what ailment he has and she is there to treat is never really explained. And he's the one person in the film who he, like a slight spoiler at her, he shows some kind of degree of affection for after she is killed during the film's climactic gunfight. Yet his mourning of her death only lasts a few seconds before he simply walks over to the window and nonchalantly starts killing police officers again. This is a man who has some code, but not enough to really ever stop on his mission. Now, I think it might be a slight criticism of the film to have such a domineering central villain, but with a film such as this, with such a short running time, one can hardly really complain. Now, when I was thinking about the man he knew too much, I was trying to kind of equate it to any kind of films that I'd seen today and why I perhaps enjoyed it so much. And the one film that kind of kept coming to mind was Taken, the Liam Neeson film. And I suddenly realised what it was that films like that are lacking, that kind of Hitchcock has. And it's a sense of humour. Those films are so serious and so kind of desperate to be taken with, with this kind of like prestige that I, I find that they fall incredibly flat on me. And it's, I think Hitchcock, the knows how to kind of make these types of thrillers and it's something we don't have today and whilst I was watching it I suddenly became aware of the fact that the kind of the building of scale in the film you know now we kind of start big and we just get bigger and bigger and bigger and the man who knew too much kind of starts off kind of smaller and gradually naturally progresses in a way which I don't think a lot of directors certainly perhaps a lot of studios wouldn't even allow today now even prior to Psycho, I would contest it is quite hard to say who is going to make it through one of Hitchcock's films. It's certainly, I think, in that way, kind of took it to its kind of, kind of, I suppose, height of surprise. And that there is such a sense of anarchy about his work. His characters are, his characters are there really to kind of serve as rather kind of crude plot devices and I think it's one of the criticisms you could make of the film in that I think he's more interested way more interested in the story and what's going on than he is because there are times where I think there's a couple of scenes in the film where you might sort of say it does lack a certain dramatic impetus um especially I think um when we're back in London some of the scenes lack any kind of suspense really at all as kind of Bob tries to figure out what what to do and what he's going to you know, who's behind all this it's as if he's trying to trying to solve a crossword, not get his daughter back. And I would kind of contend Hitchcock was really just kind of 
Body himself sort of saying, "I just get along with it, man. You know, let's get more into the kind of the, the mechanics of the film and you know what we're actually doing with the scene construction or the kind of the set pieces, as opposed to kind of listening to these rather kind of boring people try and figure out what's going on." Because let's be honest, we all know that they're going to end up finding the girl again. Now, a kind of an, an, another sort of odd addition is the character of Clive, Hugh, played by Hugh Wakefield, whose purpose really in the film is to be laughed at, and it seems rather odd to have some time for laughs given the situation but again this is the this is Hitchcock we're talking about and I think his sort of attitude seems to be there's always time to have a bit of a giggle which we certainly do because in possibly one of the most bizarrest sequences in any Hitchcock films we arrive at the a women's sun worshipping cult in the middle of a rundown area of London and poor Clive is hypnotized while Bob fights off the girls and Abbott and his kind of henchmen by throwing chairs at them and if this scene was meant to be serious then it fails miserably if it was meant to be funny then it succeeds it is one of the oddities of the film and one reason why it's almost impossible not to kind of want to play along with the fun I think it's during the Royal Albert Hall sequence where the master of Spence shows his hands now we know the audience know what is going to happen and using every trick in the cinematic book from sound mask or the sound of the orchestra sorry masking the assassin's bullet to intercutting between characters in different scenes the moment is stretched to the maximum now although i don't like the term master of suspense in my mind i think hitchcock is more the master of the set piece just thinking about the kind of the the crop duster attacking carrie garn in north by northwest one amazing surreal moment that is but somehow you know, it just works so well, and it's kind of—it's a scene that kind of builds out of absolutely nothing. And I think it's because Hitchcock knows what makes people tick. There's another scene where they go to a dentist who is one of Abbott's henchmen, and I think the dentist holds a fear for just about every human being alive. And what does Hitchcock do? Well, he makes the dentist into a kind of cold, psychotic killer, and who, who, who gasses his victims and then murders them. And uh, yeah, I personally. I, I, I don't like going to the dentist, and I don't think I'll ever look at one of them again the same. And I think it kind of builds towards a kind of a massive shootout, which at first I actually thought was rather bizarre and kind of a little bit over the top, but it was actually inspired by a real event which, um, in the early 1900s, which none other than Winston Churchill invited himself along to, um, I suppose, partake and referee in. And I, I've actually just finished reading a biography of Winston Churchill, and it made reference into this. And it's, you know, I suppose for its time, it's incredibly violent, um, this shootout. And it, it's a brilliant, because all the characters come together, including Jill, who you know, obviously knows this kind of sharpshooter from the kind of the beginning where she's taking part in this clay pigeon shoot. And... And despite all the kind of the carnage, you can feel that Hitchcock finds some time to insert some gallus humour and some genuine thrills, I think, for a film of its time. This might not be kind of vintage, I don't think, for Hitchcock, but it's certainly the film that made Hollywood take notice. And it's, it's interesting because I think a lot of people pay a lot of attention because it's a film that he obviously remade himself later in the 50s. And some people say that that's the, the kind of better film i've not actually seen that version yet i have to be brutally honest with you i was going to watch it in preparation for this but i didn't get time to and i, I don't know I, I, i've heard it's about two hours long so i'm going to check it out out of curiosity but for the time being i thought this was more than enough um in terms of the enjoyment factor and 
it's certainly a film which I kind of really, really um, can recommend, actually, especially if you're a Hitchcock fan. I think this is it's great to see these films. And it comes loaded with uh, some brilliant extras, which um, it, it's always nice to see other filmmakers acknowledging the work of the ones. And Francis Futreau was obviously a huge, huge fan of Hitchcock. And we have some kind of archival footage of him interviewing Hitchcock. Um, Guillermo del Toro as well, an interview with him. Always nice to see. Again, I, I think it's nice when we see other filmmakers paying homage because you get to you, you sort of learn a bit more about their work as well. And as well as that, we also have an extensive documentary from 1972 with the journalist Peer Lindstrom and film historian William K. Everson, which I thought was incredibly interesting. So overall, I think this is a pretty decent package. I really enjoyed the booklet as well that came with this. And kind of picture and quality-wise, a, a good restoration. I, I think it's... Um, it's it's as good as it's ever going to look as well, as was the sound. I thought it was um, certainly uh, another respectful job by Criterion. So overall, The Man Who Knew Too Much, a brilliant film. I really enjoyed it. Certainly glad it's in the collection. And like I said, if you're a Hitchcock fan, do check it out. Okay, so next up was spine number 644, which was Wim Wenders' 2011 documentary, Pina. Now, this was Criterion's first 3D Blu-ray release, and I sort of, I wondered really if kind of to attach any sort of major significance to that really, and then I kind of, I thought, no, not really, I don't think it's a kind of a, a groundbreaking release in many respects, I don't think it's going to kind of see a flood of uh, 3D Blu-rays coming to the Criterion Collection. Because when you think about it, really, Wim Enders, he's very well represented in the collection already, and I think this is the kind of the, the type of film that often gets showcased in it. And I think more interesting, really, it's, it's interesting to see how a director like Renders uses 3D because it's, it seems to be the sort of the plaything of the you know the, the the blockbuster director. And I would love to be able to sit here and tell you what I made of the film in 3D, but sadly I can't because I was not able to see it in 3D. Now, although I got the um, the release, of course, I have, it's a bit of a long, it's a bit of a palaver actually how I get to watch these films because sometimes I have to rip the files off the Blu-ray disc and then watch it through this thing called Popcorn Hour. Sometimes I'm able to watch them um, on my Mac by putting an external uh, Blu-ray drive in and connecting it to my television and try as I might. I could not make a file that could play um, in a 3D format. It was, it always failed. In the end, I just gave up really because um, I was kind of I was wasting so much time doing it. But of course, you know, I did manage to see the 2D version, and I'm not quite sure what I'm missing out. And obviously, because I, I haven't got anything to kind of cross-reference it with. But for me, the film worked perfectly fine anyway without it, which is often the case I find with 3D films. You know, you, I, Although I do like seeing films in 3D, I, I, you know, having seen ones, I've seen 3D and then watched them on 2D, for example, um, I often sort of think to myself, well, you know, I've not really kind of lost anything 
and I think this is certainly a film where I kind of felt like I wasn't really kind of missing out and now I won't lie I have never been to the ballet for before and I would say that I don't really even have kind of much appreciation for it I I, you know I I don't know its history it's kind of like its leading practitioners and of course, you know, I know things like the Nutcracker and you know, Swan Lake and that kind of thing. But you know, I've also heard of Darcy Buckle, the you know the famous British ballet dancer. But other than that, I would say I'm a bit of a luddite when it comes to the art form. And the same could actually be said of Vim Renders. Um, until it was in 1985, and he went to watch a performance of Peter Birch's Café Muller, and from then on, he was hooked with not only kind of ballet but her work in particular, and thus began a kind of a long kind of appreciation which kind of manifested itself in him wanting to make a film about her. Now, sadly, just before the film was meant to begin, um, Pina actually died, and Renders originally wanted to shut the film down. However, the kind of people who performed with her regularly urged him to go ahead anyway, um, which in some way might explain why this film was not quite what I thought. I was under the impression it was going to be kind of a, kind of a straightforward biopic. And instead it is more of a kind of a celebration of her work through her performances both on stage and in various exterior locations. Now, Venice does something quite unique from the off, which is give us a perspective of ballet that we simply would never get to see high up in the auditorium. Now, Venice got this idea through watching a U2 film and it was a 3D performance and he liked the way the camera immersed the audience into the scene. And while I can't comment on the three-dimensional aspects of this, Peen does indeed feel very like a fresh way of watching ballet. The first thing that amazed me about Pina's ballet is how raw, almost kind of brutal it is in some cases. A kind of a common recurring theme is the relationship between men and women, yet this could hardly be described as romantic. Often there is an air of desperation about how the dancers interact, and through kind of repetition that sort of crosses a line between kind of humour and the outright strange and I was I was struck by how theatrical it felt to be honest with you and the performances themselves often take place in a variety of different sets and often with the use of props and being a theatre study student there was something kind of quite Brechtian about this with vastly oversized backdrops and these performances and compositions of the pieces themselves felt more archetypal and representative at times than they did that of kind of individuals. The other aspect that kind of really surprised me was the sheer physicality of the performers. Ballet dancers have the most toned bodies imaginable by it. It was a sheer physical exertion that really amazed me. And with Vendor's wandering camera, you can hear the performance as they exhale and they contour. And it's the audio aspects of this that I had never really thought about before. And certainly, if you know you were watching the audio, I doubt you would really kind of hear along with the music. Indeed, I think Pina is quite remarkable by virtue of the fact that it completely changed how I perceive another art form. Ballet dancers have to convey as much emotion through the medium as any actor does in a performance, and indeed some of the performers talk about how she would ask them to interpret certain moods and emotions that they would then kind of duly do. What impresses is not only how they do this, but how her direction actually aids them, or aided them, sorry, to accomplish this. And... I read a negative review about the film and it said that it didn't really kind of tell us much about the woman herself and indeed there is kind of archival footage it only offers kind of a rare insight into her working mostly accompanied with her smoking which would eventually be the you know, lead to her death however I rather thought that the person who was saying this was missing the point somewhat and I might fall into the kind of the pretension trap here but in essence I think this film is a monument and a visual celebration that eschews the normal mode of the biopic by not only showing us her work, but how her work influenced and inspired others. 
Indeed, it's very likely they were going to teach other people what she taught them. Indeed, I think it's what really makes this quite a unique and, dare I say, vibrant film. Not only do you learn, but I also began to appreciate it for someone that, you know, before had no interest in this in ballet. Um, I think that's quite a kind of accomplishment for a film to do that. I think this film's also incredibly stylish. Um, we don't actually see the interviewees um, actually physically speak. We actually kind of see kind of like shots of them in the kind of traditional kind of interview kind of mode where, you know, they just kind of sat there or something. But they don't. we don't actually hear them speak. We just kind of hear them talking over the image of themselves before it goes into a performance. And I actually thought that was a really nice way of showing more about these kind of the, the characters and the kind of how these people kind of you know, were influenced by her and how they kind of how that kind of influence manifested itself in dance. And I think we kind of you find out a lot more about them um, through that technique. And it's something which you know, is quite striking and certainly um, sometimes documentaries you don't, you don't really equate um, almost kind of like little surrealist touches to kind of how interviews are conducted and certainly vendors does this and I, I, I for one really enjoyed it and there's a few other little kind of directorial flushes that I really uh, flourishes sorry, that I enjoyed like at times he kind of adds these kind of fake curtains to the side of the screen and he has kind of the performance the performance sorry looking down at kind of a miniature stage and we can actually see people performing on that stage and I think it's a very kind of playful way of, of directing and I, I think this film doesn't take itself too seriously, which I think perhaps you might think it does. And it kind of had this nice kind of um, uh, celebratory air to it, which I, I, for one, I found quite infectious. And there's a moment as well, you know, a couple of ridiculous scenes, like when a, a woman gets on this rather wonderful kind of overhead tram uh, network that's running through the city and uh, does this kind of robot impression while she's getting on and kind of sits on the chair and everyone else who's on the on this tram just doesn't bat an eyelid at her and yeah I, I for one I found it quite funny and conclusion of the film also had kind of quite a kind of wonderful and kind of poignant really because it reminded me a little bit of um, Ingmar Berman's The Seventh Seal and kind of all these kind of performers moving over a skyline and of course the last word is left to Pina and where we're in kind of a world surrounded by such madness perhaps the words dance dance otherwise we are lost kind of makes sense in a very kind of simple and naive way but overall I was um I was enthralled by Pina actually yeah I thought it was, it's it's a really genuinely wonderful film and um and it's definitely a package that's well worth getting they come loaded with features there's a make, decent making of um you get the normal blu-ray 2d and 3D, and they're both on separate discs, so there's no sort of um, uh, difference in the quality. I, I, I did note on kind of um, Blu-ray.com, they gave the 3D disc you know, a, a very high score. I think it's like four out of five or something like that. And um, really, the sound as well, I really enjoyed on this. It's got a fantastic soundtrack, which um, will be playing over the, which has been playing, sorry, over my little review of this. So um, I'm going to go with my pick of the month for January. I think it's going to have to be Pina. Um, I did enjoy. Uh, the man who knew too much but I, I think just for the kind of the sheer surprise value of Pina it um, really kind of uh, struck a chord with me and I think it's certainly well worth checking out um, tell if you have seen it in 3d as well do let me know um, what you made of it and uh, you know whether or not you kind of you think it's an essential film to see in 3d I'm still gonna try and find a way of getting this to work because uh, I, I, I'm intrigued now and um, I there is I, I have I've noticed there's um, a ballet performance coming on at Manchester and I'm probably going to try and get tickets for it now which I have this film to thank so Vim Enders Pina um, that would be my pick of the month for January and that is going to be it for this episode of the Criterion Roundups I know I'm behind I am trying to catch up and uh, 
bear with me. We will be getting there. And obviously, I don't want this to be just kind of the, the Criterion podcast. There's other podcasts that do that a lot better. There's still a lot I want to do. So hang in there. There is more stuff coming. And um, if you want to um, get in contact with me, it's 24framescast at gmail.com. You can come over to the blog at 24framescast.blogspot.com. You can follow me on Twitter at 24framescast. You can also... Subscribe to my other podcast, which I'm doing with Joachim Thiessen, which is going through the Masters of Cinema collection. That's over at moccast.blogspot.com. You can find that as well, Masters of Cinema cast on iTunes. So do check us out. If you like this podcast, I'm sure you will like that one well. Okay, many thanks for listening, and I'll be in contact soon. Bye.